that's great. It got quiet so quick. Well, I am so happy to be here. I haven't been able to uh, be here in a while. I've been at West Campus, so it's fun to come and come back and visit with you guys. My name is Wendy Lyon, and I am super excited because I get to teach the Lion of Judah. Didn't that work out nice? It's always been my favorite name of Jesus, but I really haven't known a whole bunch about the Lion of Judah, and so this has been really fun for me. How do we usually see Jesus? We see him in pictures, we see him in stories, we see him at Christmas time as a little bitty baby, and we sing songs, little lullabies like Away in the Manger, No Crib for a Bed, The Little Lord Jesus Lays Down His Sweet Head. We saw him and read about him walk with disciples in the Bible, and uh, he healed people, he encouraged them, he put their arm around them, and then we saw him on the cross as a humble servant, a lamb of God with blood looking down as, a, um, as he was crucified. And we sing hymns like, what a friend we have in Jesus, he's our friend. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And those are all, those all just are those are all characteristics of Jesus. But rarely do we hear about the lion of Judah, powerful Jesus. Lions are referred to as the king of beasts. And we see movies like Lion King, and he's called King of the Jungle, which I never understood because lions don't live in the jungle, but that's what they call him. But I think it could be that we haven't heard much about the Lion of Judah because did you know it's only mentioned one time in the Bible and it's in Revelation. Those two words are only together describing Jesus in Revelation. Um, This has been really fun to study because I learned so much and I hope you do too. And so we're going to dive into Revelation. It's the very last book of your Bible. So I would love it if you would turn to Revelation 5, verse 1. You read this at your table and I'm going to read it again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, written, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that we can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, what is going on here? Okay, here we have John. It's the same John who wrote the book of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's the last surviving apostle. So they've all been martyred. They've all been killed. And he is exiled to an island called Patmos, and he's exiled because you might remember or recall the um, evil emperor of Rome, Nero, who persecuted Christians. He just finished his reign and was replaced by another emperor who did the same. 
And so all the churches, this is a great time of church growth, are being persecuted, their leaders are being executed, and this emperor arrested John and exiled him to Patmos. Now, he's an old man now, but God was not done with John. He visits John and invites him to heaven to give him a revelation, and he wants him to write down everything he sees and hears to encourage the churches back home, back in Rome, and they are to encourage us as well. So here's John. He's standing before God who's seated on the throne. He's standing before the almighty God. God is holding a scroll in his right hand. That's a sign of power, the right hand. It has seven seals in the, um, on the scroll. They're documents. And the way this uh, was rolled up is that each seal um, covered one document. So there was an edge of a seal. There were different ed- seven edges of, this, of the scroll. So when you opened one seal, you only got to read one document, and they were all rolled up together. And it was uh, important documents were always sealed in Rome. So having seven seals meant this was a very, very important document. It was a contract or a deed. So usually a king, if they conquered a land or bought a land, they were given a contract or deed for that land. Kind of like a car title that you receive, but way, way, way more important. The scroll was a deed entitled to all creation to give him the power and dominion over all the earth, the heavens and beneath the earth. The question was asked, who is found worthy to open the scroll? And there must have been a long pause after this question because we see that they said no one was found worthy to open the scroll. No one. And John responded by weeping. He wanted that encouragement. He wanted to encourage the churches. And he was just curious. He wanted to know what was in that scroll. What was our future? Now, um, we don't know exactly what's written in the scrolls, but if you want to know more, you can read Revelation because it does outline what's going on in Revelation. So, um, finally, an elder says, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Since Revelation is the only place in the Bible where we hear the Lion of Judah, is there someone where else in the Bible that we could find out about that name? Can we look in the Old Testament? Is there something that gives us a glimpse of Jesus' character as the Lion of Judah? Yes, there's plenty, and we're going to go through those. So let's look at, um, you can flip into the very, we're going from the back of the Bible, Revelation, to the very front of the Bible in Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis 49. And while you're getting there, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Judah's family. Judah had a father named Jacob. You might recognize that name. Jacob had 12 sons. um, It starts with Simeon, no, Reuben, I'm sorry, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Judah was the fourth son. And Jacob's getting old in his years, and he's ready to bless his children. And he goes through each one. And finally, he gets to his fourth son, Judah. And here's the blessing that he gives to Jacob. This is um, Genesis 49, 8 to 10. 
Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So verse 8 says, gives us a hint, your brothers shall praise you. Judah will be elevated. His family will, will praise him. So we know he's in a dominant position. And Judah's name means praise. So I think it's interesting that he used the word praise in the blessing. And verse 9 says, your father's sons will bow down before you. So Jacob's about to die. He's handing the leadership of Israel over to Judah. He will be the leader of Israel. So he tells him, your descendants will be kings. They will all be kings. And we know from the line of Judah comes King David and Solomon. And then the last king would be until, like it says, till tribute comes. Or your version may say Shiloh, meaning peace will come to him and the obedience of all the peoples. Until the final king arrives, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and all the peoples, including Gentiles, would bow down and submit to his authority. Verse 9 refers to Judah as a lion's cub. So here we see lion used in the blessing. And we don't know exactly what this means. I looked in several commentaries, and some said it could be that David and Judah are the younger cubs until the greater lion comes, which is our Messiah, or it could be Jesus Christ as a baby until the greater lion, Jesus, comes. Bottom line, he is the Messiah, and he comes, and he will be the greater lion. So we know he will be king. He'll be a reigning king. What qualified Jesus the Lion of Judah, to be the recipient of the scroll and the deed to all creation. Look on your verse sheet at Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. It says, He, that's God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus' death and resurrection gave him the right to rule. God gave full authority over all creation to Jesus. Now, wait a minute. You might be thinking, hey, I thought... He received full dominion over all creation when he received the scroll in the future, in Revelation. And here Ephesians is saying at his death and resurrection, he received uh, full authority. He's head over all things. Well, um, you might remember um, the you might know Prince William and Kate. Does anybody follow along with the royalty, the royal family? I do. And I'm going to raise my hand high because I love it. It's magical. I love it. 
Um, and we talked about the scepter. Um, the scepter will not depart, and that's a part. I mean, a scepter will not depart from him. A scepter is a sign of royalty, and we know that Queen Elizabeth held a scepter. It's an ornamental staff. You may have seen it at her coronation, and a scepter defines who's in charge. It's a symbol of sovereignty. So Queen Elizabeth's son, Prince William, is going to inherit the throne, and we know he will. He's got everything he needs. He's the firstborn. He's in the right family. He's probably been groomed and trained to take that position, but he's not quite there yet. He has everything he needs, but he's in a waiting time until Queen Elizabeth passes the scepter or passes away. Prince William will take that scepter and lead. The same with Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection qualified him. He has everything he needs to be the ruler. But it's not until God passes that scroll and gives him dominion over all creation. The world today doesn't recognize um, Jesus Christ as ruler, do they? They don't recognize him. They change his word. They live selfishly, but Jesus will take a hold of that scepter. Whether this culture likes it or not, God is the, the authority, and what he says goes. And the consequences of refusing to submit to his authority are severe. This future scene should provoke fear and awe in the power of Jesus Christ's power to rule and to judge. Look at Proverbs 22 on your verse sheet. The terror of a king is like a roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Because he is righteous, without sin, sin, Jesus is unable to be in the presence of sin. He has to judge wickedness. When John first arrives in heaven, he sees the lion of Judah. And let's see what John's reaction is. Turn to your verse sheet and look at Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Okay, this is John who walked with Jesus. He listened to him teach. He saw him healed. He saw him crucified and ascend. He's never responded this way to Jesus. He was in so much fear, he fell flat on the ground as though dead. As our king and ruler, what moves us to a desire to want to serve Jesus Christ and submit to his authority How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia or seen the movie? I love it. If you haven't, go see it. Go read the books. They're great. Um, It's a great story of symbolism. Aslan, the lion, is the king of Narnia. He resembles Jesus Christ. And there's four kids, and they are staying with their uncle, and there's a wardrobe. And they go through this magical wardrobe into the land of Narnia. And they hear all about Aslan, this lion. And it's this ominous lion that lives out there, and they're not sure if they're supposed to be afraid or how they're supposed to approach this lion. And there's animals in Narnia, and they befriend these animals. And here's uh, the beaver talking to Lucy, the youngest. Lucy is asking about Aslan, is he safe? And he says, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Look at Psalm 34, 8 through 10 on your verse sheet. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want for those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The character of Christ as king and ruler is at the same time good and righteous. His righteousness requires him to judge sin. His goodness is completely selfless. Everything that Jesus says and does benefits us. We want to live under his leadership. We want to submit to him. When we place our trust in him, he gives us life and we receive good gifts. We can trust and submit to our king because he's righteous and good. By looking at Judah's blessing, we know Jesus will be the reigning king. But what else do we know about the lion of Judah? Well, Revelation 5 says, he who gets to open the scroll is the one who conquered. What did he conquer? Let's look back at the Old Testament. Generations um, of the 12 tribes would march. Remember the 12 tribes? Jacob's son, um, Judah, Simeon, Levi, Reuben would march through the wilderness. And God was going to bring them to the promised land. And on the way, they were, spo- they were to defeat pagan nations. And so they, there was a specific order that God had commanded them to march and to fight. Let's look at Numbers 2.9 on your verse sheet. All those listed in the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. And look at Judges 1, 1 through 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into his hand. Judah was to go before the rest of Israel. They were the largest. They may have been the strongest. But remember what Judah's name meant? Praise. His name meant praise. And they knew who would fight for them. God said, I have given the land into his hand. I'm sure Judah was leading Israel in praise before, during, and after battle. They were exalting the Lord because he fought for them. Do you remember uh, singing a song? Some of you, if you were young and you went to camp or Sunday school, you sang Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came a-tumbling down, dooby-down, dooby-down. That's how we sang it. Did the Israelites knock that wall down? No. No. What did, what did God tell them to do? You circle around it seven times. You blow trumpets and you shout. And he knocked the wall down and made a way for them to defeat their enemies. God made a way. The victories in battles were just a small glimpse of our greatest enemy. You know, we work really hard on our bodies. Um, Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, 
I like to eat a lot of chocolate. That's my problem. But we, ex- we exercise. We eat right. We go see the doctor. If he tells us to take medicine, we take our medicine. We want to live a long time. We want to do as much as we can to live as long as we can. But we're all going to have the same end, aren't we? We don't like to talk about it. But there is something that will beat us. We're all going to end up in the ground. And it's a saddest, it would be the saddest thing if we're at a funeral and we're burying someone we love and think, that's it. Never see him again. Life is pointless. Unless someone defeats death. Unless someone claims victory over death for us. That is Jesus Christ and his greatest victory. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26 on your verse sheet. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus conquered death. The grave is not the end for us. Jesus' final victory rescued us from death and gave us eternal life. We have the, when we place our trust in him, we have his power. We have his power in our lives, inside of us, over sin, even in our daily life. We have victory over sin, and he's given us a resource. This is our resource. We can use it, and it's enough to give us victory over our daily life. About six years ago, um, my family went through a really hard time, and there wasn't one major thing. It just seems like all the kids and my husband and me, we were all going through something hard, and I couldn't fix it for anybody, and I just wanted to. You know when you have kids and you just want to fix it and you can't, you just have to wait? And I um, experienced parenting guilt, great parenting guilt. Um, I should have, could have, I would have. I worried about the future. For everyone in my family, I experienced fear, it spiraled into doubt, um, and I searched for someone who had it worse than me. Maybe it would make me feel better. But I found Job. <laughs> Job had a pretty crummy life, and if you ever want to feel better about your life, you just go read the book of Job. And about Job, in about 20 minutes, he's a righteous man, and in about 20 minutes... He lost his cattle, he lost his wealth, his wife died, his crops died, his children died, and a tornado came and finally blew his house away. And last but not least, he was struck with boils all over his body. And there he is standing, ill and in pain and looking around and thinking, I have nothing. I've gone to everything to nothing. And if you read the book of Job, you'll find out more about um, why and how that happened. But really, as I read the book of Job, I was looking for two things. One, how did God respond to Job's suffering? Because it was great. And two, did it work? Did it work for Job? I knew it worked because he ended up faithful, but I wanted to know what he said. Now, there's a whole middle part where he gets all this advice from friends. It's not great advice. Um, But God gives Job the most roaring lion response. Here's his response. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the seas or walked into the recesses of the deep? 
Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Okay, I pause, and my, I honestly, my first response was, wow, harsh. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of expecting those verses. He's near the brokenhearted, a little pat on the back. I weep with those who weep. You know, that kind of verse, a comforting verse. But I, and I kept reading. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with, with a mane? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder a voice like his? Can you draw a leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? I don't even know what a leviathan is. <laughs> there are four chapters explaining his power and how great he is. And I was reading along with Job, and with every question, I was shrinking, like a parent talking to a kid. I was like, no, 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 looking down. And my perspective, God just grew. I was dying to know, did this work for Job? Look at Job 42, 1 through 3 on your verse sheet. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God's powerful response, his lion powerful response worked for Job and it would work for me because I have the same God as Job. My perspective was changed right along with Job's. God's in control. And even though my life looks chaotic, he's a God of order. He brings order out of chaos. He has a plan. He sees me. He sees what's going on. Nothing's out of control. He's got it. The word of God rescued me from self-pity. It rescued me from worry. It rescued me from doubt. And it rescued me from the unknown circumstances in my life. What are your daily battles? Is it like mine? Guilt, worry, fear. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's greed or selfishness. You know there's another lion in the Bible. And the Bible talks about this lion. It says, stay alert and watch out for your great enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's you. And it's me. And it's anyone that loves the Lord. He is against goodness. But that little lion will be crushed by a greater lion, the lion of Judah. So we look to God's word to rescue in the midst of battle and equip us with his truth. And if you're not in the middle of the battle, equip yourself, arm yourself with his word because you will be. Look at Ephesians 3.20. This is the truth I run to for rescue, one of mine. On your verse sheet. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Do you have truths in your pocket, in your car, by your bed that you run to for rescue? There's another great quote um, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There are so many amazing quotes. I wouldn't have a lecture if I told you all the quotes here. She's with Aslan. She needed his strength. And here's what Lucy says. 
Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face. But there must have been some magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up and she said, I'm sorry, Aslan. I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan, and now all of Narnia will be renewed. We trust God to rescue and equip us with his power to fight our daily battles. Okay, how many of you have heard a lion roar? Maybe at the zoo or maybe you've been on a safari. It's loud. It's fearsome, and God made them that way. And so I looked up some fun facts about lions. And did you know their vocal cords are wider and they're shaped different? So they have that loud, um, terrorizing, guttural sound. They have that for a reason. And their roar can be heard from five miles away. It's a long way. They also roam a hundred square foot territory protecting their territory and looking for enemies. Also, this is something different. The darker the color of the mane, the more dominant the lion. Their roar is loud. It's intended to frighten. They roam to protect their pride or their tribe from harm. If we look back at the lion of Judah, we get another glimpse into the character of Jesus as protector. He's our mighty protector. So we're going to go back to the home of Judah and his family. So remember, Jacob's the father of twelve, the 12 sons. And you might remember one of the sons, Joseph. Joseph was a coat of many colors. Remember that? And all the sons were jealous of Joseph. So they put him in a well and they ripped up his coat and they poured blood all over it and they brought it to their father, Jacob, and said, He's been torn apart by a wild beast, and Jacob is distraught. This was his favorite son. He, Joseph was sold into slavery, and he was sold again, but God had his hand on Joseph. This was all his plan, and he ended up in Pharaoh's court, head of Egypt, over all of Egypt. Um, his family didn't know that, and Jacob thought he was dead. So back in Jacob's family, they are starving. There's a horrible family famine, and the family is starving. So Jacob tells his son, I want you to go to Egypt. We're going to leave my youngest son, precious Benjamin, at home. But I want the rest of you to go to Egypt and ask for grain. I hear they have tons of grain there, and I'll buy it. So they pack up their bags. They go to Egypt, and they stand before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, and he's just shocked that these are his brothers. But he wants to test them because, you know, they did some pretty bad stuff to him. And he wants to test their hearts. The brothers, on the other hand, don't recognize him. And they're fearful. They think they're just coming to pay for grain. So Joseph asks, is this all of you? Is this your whole family? Are these all your brothers? And they said, no, one is no more. Which is him. (laughs) And Ben, our youngest one, we left at home. And he said, well, I want you to come and give you, give you, send you back. I want you to leave Simeon here. And I want you to go get Benjamin and bring him back. I want to know that you're honest. And, of course, they're just worried. They go back home, tell Jacob he wants to see Benjamin. And he has Simeon. So Jacob is just distraught. He said, I've already lost one son. I can't lose another one. I can't lose my precious Benjamin. So Reuben, the oldest, pipes up and offers an idea and says, Hey, Dad, I'll take Benjamin up to Egypt. 
I'll take him up there, and if we don't come back, you can kill my two sons. Okay, that is a ridiculous idea, and Jacob knew that. I'm going to lose two sons and two grandsons, and he says, Benjamin will not be going up with you. Then finally, Judah gives an offer, and here's his offer. Look at Genesis 43, 8-9 on your verse seat. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then you let me bear the blame forever. So Jacob said, sent Benjamin with Judah. He trusted Judah. They went to Egypt. They come before Joseph. Joseph's about in tears, but they still don't know who he is. Joseph fills their sacks with grain, but he sets Benjamin up. He puts a silver cup in Benjamin's sack and sends them on their way. So they're on their way, headed home, thinking everything's good, their family's going to be saved, and on comes, in comes Joseph's entourage of men, and they said, Halt, we need to check your sacks. Someone has taken the king's silver cup. I'm like, oh, okay, we, didn't, we would have never taken the cup. So they inspect all the bags, and they find it in Benjamin's. And Judah's heart sinks. Stricken with fear, Judah and Benjamin are brought before Joseph they, because they had said, whoever we find with the cup will die. They will be executed. And so they come back. Joseph pleads for an exchange. Look at Genesis 44, 32 to 33. He pleads with Joseph, your servant became a pledge for safety for the boy. Please take me instead of Ben, and I will be your servant. Judah offered an exchange for Ben's life, my life, for service, and Ben's freedom to protect Ben. Does this sound familiar? Do you see a glimpse of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his protecting us and saving us? Judah made a lot of mistakes in his life, but he left a legacy of offering his own life for his brothers. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, would descend descend from the line of Judah and fulfill this legacy with his very own life. Jesus is our protector. He keeps us safe. And when we draw near, he pulls us close and takes away our fear. Look at Psalm 34, 4 on your verse sheet. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And here's one of my go-to verses when I am fearful. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The pronoun I, there's no me in there. God's got it. Remember what Lucy did to be close to Aslan? She buried her head in his mane. She drew near to the lion. And Jesus responds by drawing near to us. We already read the first part of Revelation 117. 
Let's turn to that again on your verse sheet. Look at Revelation 1.17, and we'll read the rest of that verse. This is John. Remember, he falls flat on the floor. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Here we see Jesus drawing near. Here we see that comforting side of Jesus, the Lion of Judah and Comforter. And he would have to bend down because John's on the ground and put his right hand on John and say, fear not. I've made a way. Jesus calms our fears when we lean in to the safety of his loving arms. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, he's our good king. He gives us victory, our savior, and protector. And after learning about the Lion of Judah, I couldn't help ask through this whole lesson, why would he want me? He doesn't need me. Why would a Lion of Judah want me? Because he loves us fiercely. I don't get it, but he does. We get to have a relationship with the Lion of Judah. We get to be in his care, not because of anything he, we've done, but because of his fierce love for us. I'm going to close with a quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Let me close this in prayer. Lord God, I thank you that you are our lion of Judah. Help us to remember daily that we draw from your strength. You are a good king. You're a righteous king. We are grateful because you chose us to be your children. Help us to remember to lean into you daily. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen.